This is First Contact, stories of the call center. Get ready to dial into the exciting world of call centers with First Contact, stories of the call center podcast. Join us as we share stories from industry leaders, explore the latest trends and technologies, and tackle the challenges and triumphs of the contact center landscape. Fasten your seatbelt for a high-energy journey brought to you by Nobel Biz, the one-stop shop for all your call center needs, both in software and service. All right, everyone, welcome back to another episode of First Contact Stories of the Call Center. Excited to have you guys here and listen to our guest of today, Neil Toff. He is the co-founder of CallZilla. Now, if you don't know CallZilla, they are a leading full-service outsourced contact center, and they are headquartered in sunny Miramar, Florida. Now, if you want to understand more about the type of businesses that they focus on, you have to understand also that they are the forefront of delivering top-notch customer care and acquisition services to a bunch of different brands, spanning healthcare, I mean, I'm sorry, health, beauty, finance, telecom, fashion, entertainment, and more. So look, we're excited to have you here, Neil. Thanks for joining the show. Thank you, Christian. I appreciate it. You said the elevator speech uh, far better than I might have been able to do it on a Monday morning. So I'm, I'm grateful. Thank you for the opportunity to spend all the time together with you. Yeah, no, look, I'm excited to have you here because anytime we have a story, especially a foundation story, we always want to talk about how did you even get there and how did you even make the decision to get to being an entrepreneur? So with that said, let's kind of step back a little bit, right? How did you get into the contact center space in the first place? So uh, this is a question I get asked a lot. And typically my stock answer is exactly. I ask myself the same question. How in the world did I get into this space? And that usually elicits a laugh and a smile. And, and, and there's some humor to that. Absolutely. Um, but but th- there is actually some truth to that. It's like, how in the world did I get into contact center space? I was never an agent in the contact center. Many of the people that I encounter in the space at one time or another were agents. They were frontline team members. Uh, they started in college. It was their first job out of school. It was something they, they did to make ends meet. And I don't have that experience. And so I missed out on an incredible swath of learning in this space that many of my peers had far before I did. Um, I'm, I, I'm, on, I'm a business guy. I, I went to business school um, and I worked backwards and kind of discovered almost by accident that there was this thing called first direct marketing where you engage one-on-one with customers rather than seeing them parade through your store and pick things off the shelf and put them in their shopping cart. I, I worked in direct marketing where companies were marketing and trying to market one-on-one to acquire customers uh, and then later service them. And what I realized behind that was there's this whole thing called a call center back in those days. Well, a call center would actually be a big, had a big role in helping to acquire customers, helping uh, customers uh, resolve questions about a purchase before they made the purchase, and then helping guide them to through transaction. And then being there for them when they had a question about their, their purchase uh, later on. And, and from the business perspective, I realized that there was tremendous opportunity uh, in that world of contact centers and uh, bridging technology, customers, uh, operations, training. And I truthfully had no background in that. I, I was a business guy and uh, I started to try to understand the principles of each of those areas and take what you learn and, and when you do an MBA and apply them in a, in a real context. And it's been a, uh, a 20 now plus year career of trying to figure that out and learn and adjust and, and do that every single day because the world literally is dynamic in the context center. That's one of the things I love about it. From literally one second to the next, the world can change and you better sink or swim. You got to stay abreast of that and, and, and be a, at least even if not ahead of those changes. And that's what made it has made it so much fun for me. Well, that's interesting. You're right. I think there is always a story, right, where you fell into it as early job or there was, you know, a moment in time in which it pulled you in. And so coming from a business side of it, Right. And getting pulled into it. Let's now talk about a little bit about Paulzilla, the foundation of it, you being a co-founder. How did you go like, yeah, I want to run a business. I'm going to be part of running a business. I want to now run a call center. Where did that go from saying, yes, I'm in the space now and I'm in direct marketing and I have this. To, but how did you go to all of a sudden entrepreneur and then also say, this is the industry I want to stick in? 
Yeah. Some people are born to be entrepreneurs. I'm not certain that I was born to be an entrepreneur, but what I did was I had always had great mentors. I worked in the corporate space for a bunch of years in telecom specifically, and I always had had great uh, mentors as my bosses. And I realized and learned from them the importance of lots of different things, the use of basic math, math for business, understanding how to interact with people, uh, both that reported to you and that you reported to, and then you had to interact with to get decisions made. Those things prepared me uh, significantly well in the corporate world. I was able to get a couple of promotions here and there. But I ultimately realized that I wanted to go back to business school and really like kind of formalize the business education. Fast forward to a bunch of things. I went and worked for a very large BPO. It was my first job out of business school with an MBA. Uh, it happened to be when I came out of business school, the world was in recession. There weren't great job opportunities or, or what I had perceived as traditional great job opportunities. No one was throwing these big signing bonuses at you and and uh, you know, rolling out the red carpet and 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 uh, that nonsense had had dried up from the telecom boom. But what there was, I had found, was this plethora of job opportunities in this thing called contact centers. And I rolled the dice and I, I was headhunted. I, I took a job at a contact center, knowing that I had no experience in it. They knew I didn't have any experience, but they thought I was smart enough for it. Fortunately, and I was. And I learned about this opportunity. I learned about the, the business. Until I realized, you know, wait a minute, almost two years out, wait a minute, I think I can do this better on my own. By the way, I didn't know how to do it better on my own. And unfortunately, I had a partner who's still my partner today, Andres, uh, who he and I kind of divided the world. And we said, you know, Andres, you're going to manage the IT and telecom side of the business, and I'll handle the business side, the biz dev, the marketing, the operations and finance piece of it. And we've been learning together literally these past 20 plus years how to do this uh, because you don't learn about contact center or customer acquisition or customer care in business school. You, that's not part of the curriculum. Uh, but we tried to apply common sense business principles to what, what we were doing. And like I said, every day we learn and learn and learn. I'll tell you a quick story. Uh, our first clients, we tried our absolute best and we learned lots of things uh, around the importance of technology, of training, of managing the entire value chain of uh, people from hiring to training to supervising to administering. And we realized quickly that we needed to do our own MBA within uh, contact center space. And, and we did it. We learned very quickly. We learned we had to adjust fast. Uh, it was okay if we failed, but we had to fail fast and move forward quickly. And, and, and again, those are great lessons that we've, we've applied in the general business world, but most, more specifically to the contact center and the customer experience today. You know, it's something that really popped out of what you said that I'm sitting here and, and as much as I'm listening to everything you're saying, at the same time, I'm also going, gosh, let me just talk about something you said. You said that in school, you weren't really taught, right? In business school, customer service, customer care, customer experience. And then I sit back and I go, I don't remember that being a really strong point either. And I'm really now wondering if there's really any synergies there, right, between the fact that the concept of that is really driven by the private sector, right? The businesses that decide to innovate, those that decide to uh, excite and leave memorable memories for people that are positive versus those that just, you know, do whatever they're going to do. And if there isn't like what we'll call this standard school approach, right, to this concept, which is, I think, so critical to business. And I think when you step back for a minute and you said, oh, there's the cult, this thing called contact center, right? It's such an afterthought. And there's always this odd taste in people's mouths when they think of a call center when it comes to things like, oh, I have a problem. Oh, I got to deal with this concept of a call center, right? Uh, but it's so much bigger than that. And there's all these heroes that work in the front lines of these businesses that really make a lot of companies move. So I, I know this is a little different than some of the things we were discussing earlier. But one thing I really just wanted to ask, though, from your side, how did you go from going, I know I can do this better and knowing you didn't learn it to now being able to go, this is the right way to do it, right? And I'm sure you said you did a lot of trial and error, but was there anything in you that said, this is the right way people should be treated, the right way people should be cared for, the right way service should be done? Yeah, it's, it's a great question. Um, I will be honest that 
my own education around this came from kind of two main sources. It was from some just individual reading, trying to read some of the best, you know, books and best practices and read what was out there on the internet. However, I got really involved at an early stage um, with, you know, within my contact center work uh, in the group that is uh, called ICMI, which I'm sure you've heard of, or, you know, they put on great events, great educational uh, resources. Uh, the, the ICMI was a true motivator and inspiration for me. And, and check this out. The way this all came together, everyone kind of knows about the ICMI events that this organization would do. And their, their events still to this day are, are wonderful. But at that point in time, they had set up a Twitter chat, once a week Twitter chat. Um, it was called ICMI chat, hashtag ICMI chat. And it was about customer experience. And once a week, those of us who were participating would get together. I think it was from 1 p.m. to 2 p.m. Eastern. And we would tweet about different topics and questions and respond to different questions that the moderator would throw out. And all of a sudden, I had instant relationships with some incredible thought leaders, really bright, smart, creative, fun people that to this day are still my friends and confidants, people that I can turn to if I have questions. Some of these people have written books. Some of these people have turned out to be keynote speakers. Um, but a core group of people came together of all places. Twitter, by the way, you don't learn in MBA the importance of Twitter and social media and exchanging that as a point of, of, um, of, of learning and knowledge for your own community. But, but the reason I, I say it is it's a unique, it was a unique path uh, to get answers to questions that we were all facing. And I think now LinkedIn has exploded. Twitter has exploded. All the social media networks have exploded. But back then, uh, we, there was this niche that was developing. And fortunately, I was able to be a part of it because you're right. We, you don't learn about customer experience or contact centers or how to uh, treat people, how to manage people, not to the degree that you need to uh, really to be able to operate a business. You, you learn the theories and principles in an MBA, but you're lucky if you get beyond the surface. And the, this, these forums, uh, the, the Twitter, the one, the weekly Twitter chat and, and the, the, the contact center events that ICMI and Frost and Sullivan and so many others have put on since um, have been real treasures for me in my career. That's a great uh, nugget there, Neil. And I think one of the things about that that's kind of interesting is how collaborative it is, right? It's leveraging this medium, right? Where it wasn't like in-person meetings or trainings or seminars or big events, right? And so with that, right, you look now back at all these pivotal moments, these challenges that you've encountered through your journey, right? Through everything we've talked about, it sounds like that was definitely one thing that helped with that customer service training, getting you that core group of people that you can surround yourself with. Has there anything else that's really shaped your approach to business and specifically leadership, being at the top, the one that owns decisions that uh, can be hard at times, of course? Yeah, well, it's a, it's, it's a great question. Um, I find that the this evolves for me constantly. There are people that I turn to whose, whose works I read, I consume, I try to meet and interact with. Um, and then also I derive a lot from my clients, a lot of information from my clients. I think that I've lear I'm learning the art of listening, closing the mouth, stop talking and listening. To the extent that I have to talk is maybe asking questions but the information you get back from people is so rich if you can pay attention to it. And when you combine what's happening in the streets with the theory, you, you can find there are, there are, there's a mix, there's a synergy. It, it meshes at times. I, I want to have show you a great inspiration to me lately in the last two years. I happen to have it. I, I didn't mean to pull this out, but I, I will. It's Annette France is built to win book. It sits right here next to my, my workstation in my office at home. Uh, this has been a game changer for me. And if it were an offer, I don't know if it's a shameless plug, if I'm allowed to do this or not, but Annette's book for me has been a game changer for me personally, for the way I've set mission and vision within Callzilla, the way we try to operate on behalf of our clients. And we've, we've placed our employees, our clients, and our customers at the center of what we do. The book Built to Win by Annette is exactly about that, how to become a customer-centric and employee-centric organization and how you use data and how you give uh, each set of stakeholders a seat at the table. I mean, those have been tremendous influences for me 
and try to find my own way to take the theory and apply it in real life in what we do and how we operate and serve clients and customers. Running a contact center these days takes a great deal of courage and fortitude. Nobel Biz would like to salute the contact center community for not giving up and working hard to drive their businesses down the road to success. As the promise keepers of the industry, our goal was to provide one of the most versatile and cost-efficient omni-channel solutions on the market. Nobel Biz Omni Plus is a cloud contact center software that gives instant access to a full range selection of channels from voice calls, two-way SMS, email, WhatsApp, Twitter, Telegram, among others. Our solution offers complete control over the externalities by switching from an on-premise technology to a cloud-based solution in just a matter of hours. Get integrated compliance support, advanced reporting, seamless agent and supervisor dashboards, and many more performance-enhancing capabilities, all in just one product. Nobel Biz OmniPlus, the future-proof solution for scaling contact center operations. Learn more about Nobel Biz OmniPlus at www.nobelbiz.com. So I think it leads really well into the next topic I wanted to talk about because there's a lot of competition in your space, right? From the concept of outsourcing work, there's in-country, there's near-shore, there's offshore, there's all kinds of different types of businesses, vertical-specific, outsourcers do a lot of different types of work. How do you differentiate yourself? And I get what that piece you talked about right now, right, is the the ex, the employee experience, the customer's experience, you know, all of that collectively is important. But tactically, are there things that you've seen that you've done, learned from over these years to now where you go, this is what makes us special. This is what allows us to differentiate in the market and still be a leader as you are. It's a great question. I, I really like this. And this is something that um, I constantly kind of push myself to understand is how can we stand out among the, someone says there's like 70,000 call centers in the world. I don't really know if that's true or not. I think if there are 70,000 call centers in the world, I, and by the way, this is a, a, a line in our sales pitch we talk about. If there are 70,000 call centers in the world, we want to consider ourselves to be among the 69,750 that are not good. We want to be in that top 250. And if we can do that, I think we will certainly stand out from the rest of the noise and, and, and garbage, unfortunately, that's out there. The question is, how do you do that? If you look at the research today, there's a, there's a great research organization called HFS. It's called HFS Research. They came out with a study of all things about BPOs, about business process outsources and contact centers and outsourcing in, in contact centers. This is not one of the fields of traditional research by the business research, by the way. This organization has done some great research, and, and, and I don't have all that handy right here, but for me, what resonated in the most recent uh, publication that they put out earlier in 2023 was that the BPO, or the Outsourced Contact Center, is now being looked at by the client, by the buyer of our services, to help us, to help them work through digital transformation, change management, the headaches, the traditional headaches with outsourcing, and to be the provider of many of the tools and theories and practices that the buyer or the brand typically can't or doesn't want to have to assume themselves. They're busy with their own digital transformation, their own headaches, their own problems. But they look to us to be the one to bear the brunt of these responsibilities of managing ChatGPT of how to utilize, we talked earlier about conversational AI. How do we help in the customer journey and customer experience leverage the tools uh, to make customer experience better, cheaper, and faster? In the older days, I believe the brand or the buyer would look to assume many of those burdens, but the research is beginning to show that they look more at the, at the BPO, at us, to start to foot and assume much of that responsibility. And I think if we can do so, and we can leverage tools and tactics and experience and, 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 and uh, uh, processes, then we will stand out and be among those top 250 or so in the world um, and, and separate ourselves. That's what I 
where we're headed. I believe we're doing a good job in it, but it's a, it's a, it's a battle every day because of the way technology changes and customer journeys change and customer demands are constantly changing and new, new communication channels and new habits and new products and new service. There's so much going on. We have to try to stay ahead of the curve and move a million miles a minute to do so. But we're, I think we're doing a pretty good job at it. So what's interesting about some of the things you said, right? And we'll definitely get to the, the AI side of it. But for the longest time, we talked about multi-channel and omni-channel, right? This concept of just being able to communicate in different ways. And then how do you make it better among all these different mediums to meet the customer where they want to be met, how they want to be met, right? Where does... Callzilla fall into the dynamic of is your customer the one that is saying this is how I want you to communicate with my customer and this is the most common ways is really people adopting in your customer base social media or is it still SMS and email and phone or is it primarily phone what are you seeing trending and then from that perspective are you the one that comes to the customer and says hey you should involve these other medias or it's more of the customer saying, can you do this? And you say, yeah, if we can do it, then we'll definitely do it and we'll do it well. It's such a great question. There's no true single answer to it. I wish we could be prescriptive in every uh, relationship we have with our clients. However, there are clients that come and say they know what they want and they just want us to execute. And there, there are, it's sort of the, the, the old adage of, um, they say jump and we have to ask how high and we're good with that. We, we, we work well within that environment. Uh, you know, they'll tell us we're going to bring our CCAST platform. We're going to plug you into it and you're going to handle these channels. And it's usually phone. It could be email and probably chat. Those are the top, typically the top three. It could be one of those three. It could be two of those three. It could be all three of those three. It could change from quarter to quarter. It could, it, it's, it, it's dynamic. We have to be many things to many different types of clients. There are other opportunities where we get to add a little more art to the science, where we get to analyze and say, okay, here's kind of what's going on in your customer's world. This is what our recommendation would be based on what we see. And then we can begin to have a little bit more creativity of adding a channel. Sometimes it's a channel or technology added by us. Sometimes it's a channel that is added using the, the client's technology. Sometimes the client knows exactly what they want. Sometimes they have no idea what they want. But where we are, where it makes sense for us to be consultative, we are and we have to be at, um, when, when that opportunity presents itself. Uh, clients sometimes know exactly what they want. They don't want to hear anything else. That's okay. There are other clients that are willing to listen and, and put that onus on us. Right? talk about the the, the change management of the digital transformation, they will come to us and look at us and say, hey, help us out here. We're not the experts. You guys are the experts. What do you think we need here? And that's where we have some fun collaborating in and really creating the masterpiece and iterating and adding a, 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 a channel, adding a shift, adding a service, adding a whatever it is, adding an inbound to an outbound or an outbound to an inbound, these kinds of things. And, and, and we've got to be in play in, in each of those different arenas um, to be able to be competitive and to be able to be as consultative as possible. You know, what's so interesting about what you're saying is, you know, we always talk about know your customer, right? And I don't mean just know your customer from like a compliance side, but like understand your customer and what they want of you um, will help you with building that journey that the customer wants, right? There's an end result experience that they want. And when we talk about it from an outsourcing perspective, there's like, what does your customer want for their customer? But you also know that you have a lot of different types of customers, right? Uh, your customer may only service their customers in a certain way. Right? They may have a more structured approach, but you have to look at it and go, is this customer coming to me and saying, this is how I want it done. You need to conform to it. Can you deliver? And can you meet these things? Um, and then the other side is, whoa, you're the expert. You have to be the one that knows and understands how to take care of my business and you got to come in here and consult with that. So with that being said, we talked about uh, earlier, you know, the concept of return on investment. When we talk about these uh, efforts like customer loyalty and brand perception and things of that nature, we, we talk about when you invest into these customer experience initiatives, when your customer does or you recommend it as that consultative side, um, how do you recommend that one measures 
that return on investment, whether you've learned it through your customers or you're trying to tell your customers, if you do these things, it could help you improve customer loyalty. It could help you improve brand perception. How do you measure those things or how do you share the concept of those things and saying this is worth the investment to do? Yeah. Some of them are measured in dollars and cents. Others, yeah. others are measured in things that are a little bit more nebulous, like CSAT or NPS. By like parentheses, I don't like NPS so much. There are still clients of ours that utilize it. Um, and it's up to them to determine, okay, if we get, you know, five additional points out of, uh, out of a CSAT survey, what does that mean to us? How does that translate into return on investment or how does that translate into uh, customer lifetime value? Um, there are things that we can directly recommend that we influence and have access to. There's others that, that are a little bit harder to calculate, but the principle of better, cheaper and faster are also important to notice and, and share. I'll give you an example. You and I, before we hit recorded, talked about conversational AI. Conversational AI uh, means lots of things to lots of different organizations, by the way. But um, one of the things that we're leveraging is the use of speech and text analytics to replace traditional QA or quality assurance work. So in the old days, or some some organizations still have it. There, you know, they've got some people over there in the corner listening to two percent of the calls, three percent of the calls. And they um, um, make deductions that says, okay, of the calls we've listened to, uh, you know, our QA score is uh, 79.86%. And um, that's what it is. Well, how can you really know what the heck is going on when the QA score is 79.86% and you're listening to 2 or 3% of the call? That seems to me statistically almost irrelevant or maybe definitely irrelevant. Um, and anyway, what is 70, what did I say, 78. Seven, six, whatever the, the number is. What does that even mean? There's other important metrics and ways to gauge experience, I think, outside of the traditional QA score. And that's where leveraging these new technologies of speech and text analytics can really allow you to hone in and give you insights and data as to what the heck is actually happening in 100% of the interactions. Not just the two or three percent, but a hundred percent. And we've had a lot of fun with that. And by the way, we're using these technologies. It checks the boxes of better, cheaper, faster. You're analyzing, analyzing, and listening to a larger sample size. You are able to hone in on a significant, wider, and deeper range of data points. And you can hone in and understand what the heck is actually being said. And not trying to jam it in and fit it into a, a scorecard in Excel somewhere that you can't really modify. Um, we have a lot of fun uh, with that, These, you know, especially this year and, and, and last year. I think 2024 is going to be even bigger with the the usage of of, of speech and tech technology. Well, I think now that we've opened the box, right, of conversational AI, there's definitely some stuff we want to talk about. And I think what you started with of how people are leveraging it in their QA side. So they go from 2% and not 100%. So let's kind of focus on that for a minute. Now that traditionally you take 2% and then you obviously got to go figure out who you have to coach and who you have to figure out, you know, hey, here's the bad stuff you did. <laughs> um, and obviously everyone has their own approach of how they leverage that information and how they build up their team or sometimes it may not come across that way. Um, now that you have a hundred percent of the data, how do you take so much data and then still be able to make it actionable? And what insights have you been able to sit there back and say, okay, now that I have a much better holistic picture of what's happening, how have you seen that help you improve performance or reduce costs outside of the fact of, yes, we get the side of you have a lot more information and you're doing it maybe with less people or different people, but how is that impacting the performance of the agents and the people that you're onboarding, whether it's new training, new staff, or it's people that have already been there? I think it's it, a chunk of it is what you just referred to is how can you identify where an agent needs more training or where an agent is the wrong person to be doing the job or maybe the right person to be doing the job? So you can see where situations can get tense, where customer sentiment goes negative, and how the agent handles it. How does the agent treat the customer? How does the agent respond and hopefully resolve? Did the agent resolve? Is the agent's training or lack of training reflective in 
what is going on and taking place during the interaction. With the technology, you can leverage and, and analyze all that. By the way, one thing that I've been thinking about and, and what we're developing around lately is that traditionally, I believe, the QA exercise has been a gotcha exercise. It's been a, we're going to catch the agent screwing up. We're going to catch the agent and punish them. We're going to find where the agent is a dumbass, excuse the expression, and try to catch them and, and, and prove to them and make it a humiliating exercise for the agent and show them where they screwed up because we got it on tape and here we're going to catch them. I think that the, with the new technology, we need to be able to use the technology to actually leverage and analyze voice of agent as well as customer experience or, or, or voice of customer. So the, the exercise typically has been to see what's happening for the customer, but let's flip it and actually see what's happening for the agent. What is the agent experience? Utilizing the technology, you can start to hear what is the agent sentiment? Where is the agent demonstrating stress, fatigue, ignorance, frustration? If you can pinpoint and create data around those, all of a sudden, you can improve the agent experience. You know where the difficult parts of a conversation or interaction are, not just in the agent's training, but also the tools that the agent is using. So if you can find and show data that at, at a specific point in a call, an agent is taking longer to respond, putting the customer on hold, uh, not being able to resolve, the, the duration is longer, you can start to make determinations like, wait a minute, maybe there's a silo. Maybe the information isn't readily available. Maybe the tool or tools themselves or itself are bad or incomplete, or the training on those are incomplete. And you could start to glean insights for what the agent is going through. And all of a sudden you realize, wait a minute, this wasn't only the fact of a um, of, of just a bad agent. It's not just a bad agent. There's actually process and technology behind the scenes that we can also optimize and improve and fix things. And all that trickles down directly or indirectly to customer experience. So I think you have to, as we as organizations, we have to get smarter and figure out how to leverage these things, know what we can use them for, and turn it around and not just use them as a gotcha exercise, but start to point the finger at us and say, wait a minute, the tools we're providing are not adequate yet. And here's where they're not adequate and why they're not adequate, and we can prove it. That's what we're the direction we're heading with with the technology. Yeah, it's a really key piece of going from the gotcha to investing into how do you make things better versus it always being the person, that moment in time, right? Where when you can take all that data, it almost allows you to potentially look at and celebrate all the people that are doing a great job because you don't really know that. You're guessing when you're looking at 2% and the KPIs that everything on those calls are going as well as they are. Even if the outcomes are good, you're missing all these opportunities to celebrate wins and also look at where there's areas of opportunity. So talking about being proactive, right? You're talking about this proactive approach with the team and and the, the uh, employees' experience. When we look back at the concepts of how you're leveraging conversational AI, are you seeing that being able to be also leverage from a proactive customer engagement strategy. Think of like personalized outreach or post-purchase follow-ups, uh, ways to build stronger customer relationships. How are you seeing or do you see that working? I admit I'm not certain yet. These are learning points that I don't have the answer to. I wish I did. And I think the capabilities and the technology exist to be able to utilize them for those things. But um I, I wouldn't want to lie to you and say that we figured it out and cornered the market on them because I don't think that that path is so clear yet. I think it will get there and I think it's probably close to our, it's almost at our fingertips maybe. Uh, and it's certainly on, on us to learn how to utilize those things and, and, and adapt the technology for that. But I can't tell you that we are doing it yet today um, or that I have a clear sense of exactly what to do and how, how to be prescriptive about it. I don't, I wish I did. If, if I did, by the way, I might have won the, you know, the Nobel Prize for customer experience already. But, but no, I, I'm not there yet. But I know that I think that we're going to be able to get there within the next year and start to, to, to make some initial steps towards it. So do you think that'll be another frontier, another level in which it changes that concept of knowing the customer, building a more personalized experience? 
So absolutely. So by the way, yes, there, there are ways to, to customize experiences, right? You know, uh, if you're, if you're Amazon, you clearly know the things that I've bought and you can suggest uh, promotions and things that other customers have bought um, that are, that are related and things that I may like that, I, that, that technology series obviously exists, but from the contact center, the outsource contact center, what do you do with that? I'm not clear yet how to fully roll that out and what we do with it. We know that, okay, this person contacted the contact center on such and such date. We can learn and have access, start to have access to some of the data around those previous interactions. Were they satisfied? How did they rate us? Um, uh, did we in fact resolve their problem according to the survey or according to the analytics that we used? Um, there are some things like that that are at our fingertips. But again, I think this is a bit of a new frontier. Uh, and I don't yet think that anyone is truly leveraging the capabilities that are there. If I'm wrong, I'd love to be pointed out and be wrong. But I'd be surprised if, if, um, if those in our community are fully utilizing those as, as we can yet. I would love to be able to, to, to be shown and, and learn how we could actually do that and, and use it for good, by the way. And, and show that, you know, Mr. Brown, you're calling in. I see that we didn't resolve your problem last time. How can I help you today? You know, I, I think we need to do a very careful, deliberate, sensitive job of what we do with that, with that information, how we train around it and, and how we improve the experience around it. But I don't, I don't have all the answers to that one yet. A famous African proverb says that if you want to go fast, go alone. But if you want to go far, go together. At Nobel Biz, we have made it our mission to travel far and wide with our partners and clients. As a complete telecom services provider with over 20 years of experience in the industry, Nobel Biz offers the only voice carrier network designed with the sole purpose of serving call centers around the world. This contact center dedicated carrier network provides crystal clear voice traffic, up-to-date compliance tools, intelligent routing, and highly secure data protocols combined with 99.9% .9 uptime and easy setup. Our goal for 2022 is to become the ultimate partner and provider for the contact center industry by placing service quality at the top of our priority list. To top it off, at Nobel Biz, we have the most competitive cost per minute model in the industry. Need proof? Reach out to us and learn more about the Nobel Biz Voice Carrier Network at www.nobelbiz.com. Well, that's the great thing about community, right? And hopefully those of you that are watching, you never know, there's somebody who's going to reach out to you at the end and say, Neil, I'm working on this right now. I'd love to be able to collaborate. You never know, right? And so one of the other topics we talked about around conversational AI was also really the diversity of language, right? And the multilingual interactions. How do you effectively do that, still maintaining that cultural sensitivity that exists when we're talking about things like conversational AI? Have you run into anything in that arena yet? Yeah, so th this one comes up more frequently than one might imagine. So multilingual, um, at least in the U.S., typically multilingual would, re would typically refer to someone speaking Spanish. How do you solve Spanish? That's the, 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 the language that's most spoken outside of English in the U.S. It, that's a dime a dozen. Most of our contact centers today have a site somewhere in Spanish speak, in the Spanish-speaking world, or we have Spanish speakers in the contact center based in the U.S. That, that's not as difficult to solve these days as it, as it had been. Now you get to the trickier languages that are less common to find, and by the way, also a bit tricky to source. And by the way, they're also expensive to source. And by the way, they probably don't make sense to necessarily staff for, right? Does it make sense to, to staff for Tagalog when you have you know, a call a day or a call a week? Probably not. And that's where the amazing AI tools come in that can supplement having to have a real live person that costs a significant amount of money that speaks Tagalog well, you can leverage the technology and the conversational AI, uh, voice AI um, uh, for, for Tagalog. If I were to look at it, the, some of the recommendations I'm, I'm making is not necessarily to staff utilizing uh, voice AI, but certainly text AI. I think those are increasing, those are easier, lower hanging fruit to be able to text in for chat, for email, for SMS. 
Uh, voice is a bit trickier because you have things like accents and it's a bit harder maybe to translate and have a fluid real-time conversation. But when you're writing, you have a little bit more time and it's a bit easier, I believe, in the experience of a customer to try to understand and appreciate that, okay, here's a, uh, a message coming back to me in language. But the, the, the tools and technologies that are out there are just astounding. They're going to continue to get better and better and better and provide better and better experiences, I believe, uh, for customers. And again, along the lines of better, cheaper, faster, you know, rather than having to, to, to staff and have the person that speaks, you know, fill in the blank, Tagalog, Mandarin, Arabic, uh, uh, French, Canadian, you know, all the different nuanced languages that are expensive, the technology is there and costs, you know, relatively speaking, pennies on the dollar. And, and like I said, I think it's just getting better and will make it better, cheaper, faster, that much more achievable. So I know you kind of said right now, voice isn't there yet, right? But we still see IVRs that were traditionally just, you know, branching trees, you know, so on and so forth. But now with this more advanced AI, you know, voice aspect um, in that IVR experience, that still, even though that's the voice side, maybe eventually self-service or getting you to an agent, how do you see any considerations being taken into account leveraging that in a way? So you're still, yes, hopefully doing it better. That's, you know, the first word than, you know, cheaper and so on and so forth. Um, but if you don't do it well, you know, it definitely causes a lot of friction for people. Any insights into where to yeah, balance you, that? I, I love that you brought this up. It's almost, I think, correcting my, my notion. I think that the days of the IVR, the traditional IVR, press one for this, press two for that, those are going to fall by the wayside and be replaced with the conversational AI. Uh, the IVR will recognize your name, most likely if you've called, contacted before, uh, and it will be able to engage you. The question I believe is, will customers be willing to engage? And I believe that the answer, my intuition, this is not based on research, is that more and more customers will engage, even if it's with a robotic sounding or robotic-esque sounding, a conversational AI platform, because people don't want to wait for a live agent anymore. I think people are willing to give the, the voice bot a chance, I believe, if they don't have to wait an hour on hold to get to a live person. I, and what I'm seeing is that the, 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 those conver the, the ability of the conversational AI replacing the IVR are that much more powerful, that much clearer, that much more able to resolve and have a substantive back and forth conversation, far better experience than waiting on hold for an hour, far better experience than press one for this, press two for that, and being in an endless queue, waiting, waiting, waiting through the traditional IVR. So I had a curiosity. If you had, let's say that use case, right? You had your customers and you had two options, right? Your option one is wait for the hour versus wait, uh, work within that conversational AI or, you know, AI bot, um, you feel people would actually prefer having the bot versus waiting for the phone. Generically speaking, of course, that's dependent on the reason for the call and vertical and yeah. all that stuff. I, I, I love this question. What I don't think enough companies do is they don't explain the options. The option is we can have an agent available in the next hour or you can stay on the line and engage with our, uh, uh, our auto attendant or whatever, you know, some people name the, name the, 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 the voice bot. Stay on the line with Steve, whatever, know whatever it is. And Steve can do a pretty good job of helping you. I think if you set the expectations, the customer, the customer will more opt in more and more to the voice bot and be surprised that the voice bot can do significantly more and provide at least a better experience than waiting on hold and they actually get to resolution. But I don't think the utilizers, the users of the voice bot are doing enough of a good job of explaining the options. They're just pounding and pushing the person right into the, right into the voice bot rather than explaining the options. Does that make sense? Nope, totally makes sense from your perspective of comparing the two, right? And so just out of curiosity, throw, throw another little layer in there. If that hour wait was truly on hold or a queue callback, would they take the cue callback over the conversational AI, you think? So this is a good question. I was thinking about as, as I was listening to you on the previous question is that's the, the other element is you offer a callback. And I, and I certainly select the callback from the bank, 
from the airline because I don't want to wait on hold for an hour. Uh, I think I've made a judgment call of whether I think that the reason I'm calling can be addressed by a, by a bot or it's better to just get a call back. Um, I don't know the answer, but, but it becomes interesting. If the bot is truly equipped to handle some complex stuff, then the, then the brand needs to offer the bot. Offer the bot and explain, look, we believe that we can handle your, your questions. Yeah, I wonder if your confidence, and I don't mean you, Neil, right? But just the business that's implementing the bot has the confidence that their bot is presented properly. It is set up in a way for the customer to be as successful as possible, right? It's not been done in a poor way where, you know, it's just going to piss a lot of people off, right? Abandon those calls or when they finally get to an agent, they're just going to be railing on how crappy their conversational experience was. Um, but if it was that good, and, and let's just forget the technical, how would you do it and if it's feasible kind of part, but if you were to say to a customer and say, when they come into that system, hey, we have a choice. You have queue call back in an hour. You can wait for an hour. You can talk to the bot. But if you choose to take the bot, we'll hold your spot in line for that hour. And if it resolves your problem, great. You leave the queue. If it doesn't resolve it, you keep your spot. And any time you would have wasted isn't wasted out of line. Smart idea. I think it would be a great, you'd get, you have more people opt into the bot. Sure. You know, I mean, yeah. there's obviously ways to convince people to say, you know, is this worth it? But I think it's this concept of either or, right? That risk of like, well, gosh, do I do I risk wasting and going in this line when I should have been in that line? I don't know. So it'll be interesting to see how people leverage it. And it's a great conversation to see how you're looking at it, how you're leveraging. It, and then obviously how other people will uh, in the community will do it. So let's kind of shift to another topic real quick, right? The pandemic. When we talk about during that period of time up until now, what major stuff happened with you, with Callzilla? What happened in the business with you and your customers during that period of time? And what have you learned from that? Any big things that you learned from that? And what have you gone, done, gone, what have you done since and going forward? Thank you. Thank you for the chance to talk about that. You know, some of the responses you won't be surprised at. We, we, we moved from a fully bricks and mortar um, uh, operation to work from home. Everyone did that. Check. We checked the box. We did digital transformation. We started to utilize a significant number of tools to make uh, experiences better, cheaper, faster. Um, but most organizations did that as well. So I don't think we stand out necessarily from those things. I think that mid-pandemic to present time, there are two big shifts that we made in our business. Three, three shifts, sorry. The thing is, it's three. Number one, we added a geography in our footprint. So historically, over 18 years of servicing clients, we had only handled uh, contacts from our nearshore location in Colombia. During the pandemic, we opened up and added South Africa for a number of different reasons. South Africa has native English. It's, a, it's the most powerful and attractive service delivery point into the US today. It wasn't as well known two or three years ago. It was certainly emerging, but here we are two to three years later and it is the number one delivery point into the US. So I'm proud that we uh, moved heaven and earth to, to put all of that together. And that's a great, uh, a point for low agent attrition, a stable workforce, a hungry workforce that's focused on quality and, um, and, and customer experience. So we're very proud of that. And we've seen that our client base and our prospect base, it very much resonates with them and they're very pleased with what we're able to offer from South Africa. So that's a big thing to have accomplished in general, but especially during the pandemic. Um, and then I think another important thing, two more things. Um, the, the stuff I'd already talked to you about uh, the change management and digital transformation and handling the data and insights and being more data-driven so that our clients can rely on us for, for those insights and that value-added type service. That's been a big change for us. That involves a whole significant number of things in terms of resources and technology that we've invested in, something I'm proud of. And then finally, um, the thing that I would talk the most about, I've hammered home and I've repeated it several times about digital transformation, and those things certainly continue. However, 
for us, one of the most important mind shift changes that we've made is to focus on analog transformation. Remembering that this is a people business and process business. We need to have the artists in addition to the scientists, the people, training our people, preparing them, developing them, motivating them, keeping them engaged, involving them and giving them a seat at the table so that we can truly, really be customer-centric, client-centric, and employee-centric. When we focus on the people, then we, we differentiate ourselves and truly become one of those top 250 or so contact centers in the world. That's something different. Not that not, most are not doing that. They're focusing only on the technology and we're focusing on technology. We certainly are, but if you don't have the people to operate the technology and to create the process and to service the customers and to create the designs, we're talking about design, to create the paths and designs and flows and journey mapping. If you don't have the right people, forget about it. You're out of luck. We've understood that. And so we focus significantly once again on our people. So I would summarize those, those things. You know, I love how you finished on the people, right? We've talked a lot about technology and we've also talked about some process. And uh, even though we've talked about people throughout as the theme, the pieces that each of these things enable their success. But when we think about the contact center space in general, right, the volume of people that come in and out of the space, right, they go through the front line side of it, right? They've been an agent, they maybe been a supervisor at some point, but I think you gave a great example earlier when we were talking about QA and it was a gotcha into how do we then transform the gotcha into investing into your success, right? How do you succeed, which helps us succeed, which helps the customer succeed, right? It's kind of that full circle you started with at the beginning. And so when you look at that, that piece of investing into making a career out of your call center experience versus it just being a blip on the radar or a story to tell in a moment. Um, I do see that as a trend of reflecting back that it's just not an acceptance that this is a high turnover industry. It's not just an acceptance that you're just going to have a lot of attrition. That's just the way it works is that there is a path for certain portions of your staff to really look at it and say, what, what does my future look like here? And that future may be fine. It's an extra six months. Well, next six months may be a lot to how much time and effort and money you're spending to go hire, train, and bring in the next people and the turn up for them to ramp up and all the stuff that financially to your better, you know, cheaper, faster. There has to be some stuff you learn from there as well. Absolutely. It costs so much effort, time, money to get somebody to walk through the door, to apply, go through the process, hire them train them, lead them, motivate them, wash, rinse, repeat. It's not in anyone's interest to let that person go unless they have to be let go because of one reason or another. You want to get those people to stay and to perform and reach their maximum level of productivity and enjoyment and engagement. If you can do that, everybody benefits. Um, but that's where the art also comes in, right? There's a little science, but there's a, there's a lot of art to that and trying to figure out how to do that correctly so that you can get the extra six months, 12 months, 18 months and beyond. It's, it's, for all of our organizations, it's hard to hire and keep good talent, but that's what we have to do to be able to survive. And the second you lose those people, then it becomes significantly harder to, to, to get someone as good or better to walk back through the door. You don't want them to leave. Keep them as long as you can, make them happy, make it a lucrative experience for them because the world changed. Certainly the world changed in the pandemic and it's not easier to hire and retain anymore. Definitely. So love the conversation and I definitely want to make sure we finish off with a little bit about you. But one thing that I think is really important from that, those that have listened to your story about wanting to be and aspire to be an entrepreneur, if there are others out there, whether it be into the call center space or otherwise, if they're considering to do so, is there any advice you would give them looking back and saying, I wish I would have had this advice or this advice was critical for me when I made that decision? Yeah, wow. It, it's, um, there's art to entrepreneurship, I think. Um, I've been fortunate to have 
partnered with a person whom I trust, value, who compliments me, who I compliment, finding people to work with as your partner, as your investor, as your advisor, as your provider, as your employee. Business is about people. Find good people. Without good people, forget about it. It makes it very, very difficult. Um, so that's certainly one thing. Business is about people. Uh, and then the other thing I would say is it's okay to fail. Not all businesses success, uh, succeed. Not all uh, launches of products or services succeed. It's okay. Get to an MVP, minimally viable product, launch it, and start to fix it as you learn. It will be broken. The company you set up will be broken, but use the time to learn, adjust, get stronger, get better, get smarter, make changes so that you can be successful. Success doesn't come overnight. Success is a day-to-day -day battle. And if you have the um, stomach and fortitude to be able to fight that battle every day, you will be successful, but you gotta have that fortitude. You gotta be able to look critically at it every day and be surrounded by people that are going to give you feedback to help you out. I think those two things are really important. Your, your heart and your grit internally, your ability to take criticism and take failure, brush it off, move on, because you're surrounded with good people and ideas that will help you uh, execute those ideas. I think those are the two big things that are important in, in hopefully being successful as an entrepreneur. Yeah, I loved those two things. I mean, you used one of my favorite terms, grit. And, you know, part of that grit is that also wiping off that dirt because you fell, you had to get back up, found a way to get back up and you move forward. It also means that you're not alone, right? You have the right people, whether it's one partner or a group of people surrounding you that you know you can't do it all on your own, right? And finding where other people compliment you where you're not necessarily the best person for it is huge. I think a lot of times, a lot of leaders early on, especially they want to handle the world on their shoulders and it collapses underneath them. So with that said, how do you balance in your life, business, having that healthy work life balance? What do you do to stay as an effective leader, you know, at work, but also find that balance outside yeah. of work? It, it's so important. You, you get, I recommend for all of us, you got to get out of the office, go be on the street, go smell what's going on out there in the marketplace or marketplaces that you serve. You go to the trade show, go visit a prospect, go visit a client, go visit a, um, a, a vendor, get out of the office. By the way, I, I'm, I'm a homebody. I like to be at home. I have to force myself to get the heck out of my seat and go. That helps create some balance in your work life. Go talk to people, go meet with people, go see people. Outside of work, you gotta have hobbies, you gotta have passion, you gotta have interest. Get out of the house. Going out to eat is not a hobby. It's fun, I do it, not a hobby. In my personal case, I like to play golf. I've been learning how to play golf over the last five years. At my age, I'm, it's new for me, it's not as easy. I wish I had learned as a kid. But it consumes me enough, I'm so fascinated by trying to get better and better and better. It's a little bit of competition, but it's a little bit of just kind of learning something new. And by the way, being okay with being uncomfortable, trying to learn how to have this tiny little white speck with this metal club and trying to get it to, the ball to go to the right place that I want it to go. That's been a challenge for me, but I've loved it. I found in golf a hobby. For some, for others, it's music. For others, it's the theater. It's cinema. It's, uh, it's arts and crafts. It's, it's whatever it is. Find a hobby. Find a passion and do something. And I don't think you need to have 10 different ones of those, you know, those that have 10 hobbies, wonderful, that's wonderful. I think you need to have at least one that you can look forward to and distract you and occupy your mind on, on something else. And by the way, I think reading, reading is really important. Whether you read a print version of a book or a, you know, a digital online, I don't think it matters. Reading, you got to read, 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 read. Uh, I wish I did more reading. I need to create more time for myself to read. But that that's an important part, I think, for, for all of us to be able to create a balance and keep keep learning. Keep the learning on, as Roy Atkinson says. K-T-L-O, I think is the expression. Keep the learning on. <laughs> oh, great stuff. Look, Neil, there's going to be people that want to connect with you or want to know more about Callzilla. How do they go about doing that? So the website is simple, callzilla.cx. Follow us on LinkedIn. 
uh, we have a decent um, um, presence on LinkedIn, trying to update and share stories. I think that's another important thing I learned during the pandemic, by the way, is the importance of sharing and telling stories. We try to tell our stories as much as we can on, on LinkedIn. Hopefully they're good stories. I think the stories that people like about our people and why we're different and the cool stuff that we're doing. Those two are the, are the great places to find us. I'm on LinkedIn. Uh, I know you'll when this is published, you'll see my my name in there and tag me. By all means, I, I accept all invitations. Love to connect with people on LinkedIn. I, I interact in different groups and simply message me. It's, it's easy to find me that way. Yeah, you never know. There may be someone out there saying, I'm already doing or I'm working on the outreach, proactive, conversational stuff, and they'll connect with you. Well, look, thanks so much for joining. It was a great conversation that wraps up another episode of First Contact Stories of the Call Center. Now, look, for those of you who want to stay tuned, please subscribe. That way you can see what's going on. Give us a share or review with your friends and colleagues. Thanks so much for joining, Neil. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Thank you for joining me in this episode. If you're loving the content, make sure to hit that subscribe button on your YouTube channel for exclusive clips, webinars, workshops, and bonus materials. And if you're an Apple iTunes listener, we greatly appreciate a five-star rating and review to help spread the word. On our YouTube page, you can also leave us feedback, comments, and suggest future guests that you'd like to hear from. For even more valuable insights and information on the call center world, visit NobelBiz.com and access our on-demand webinars. I'm Christian Montez, and thank you for tuning in to another episode of First Contact Podcast. Stay with us for the next exciting chapter.